Blog Talk Radio. to another episode of Inside Throw Radio with your host, Jenny Milchman. Tonight's show is called Two Women, Two Lives, Two Amazing Stories with her special guests, Carol Brookins and Pamela Crane. So without any further ado, take it away, Jenny. Welcome, everybody, to Inside Thrill Radio, a joint production between international thriller writers and Suspense Magazine. I'm thrilled to be kicking off our new season, our 2017-2018 season, with one of the shows that I've been most excited to host. I have here a show called Two Amazing Women, Two Amazing Lives, and Two Amazing Stories. And one of the really interesting parts of our show tonight is we're going to be talking about both fiction and nonfiction in the thriller world. My guests tonight are Pamela Crane and Kara Brookins. And Kara has written a memoir called Rise, How a House Built a Family, while Pamela's new book, which is book one of a new series, is called The Art of Fear. Pamela's is a thriller, Kara's is a memoir, but if I tell you that these books have astonishing parallels, I will be preparing you for some of the surprises that are in store for you tonight. So welcome, Pamela and Kara. Hi. Hi, everyone. (laughs) Hey, it's great to be here. Welcome to Inside Thrill. Welcome to an audience that, if if prior shows um, predict, consists of a lot of debut authors, a lot of emerging writers, and a lot of ITW members, international thriller writers members, and a lot of readers of Suspense Magazine. What I'd like to do to start off is, rather than give each of your bios, I'd like you to tell the listening audience, a little bit about yourself, whatever you feel is relevant. And then we're going to get into your book, and then we're going to get into a little bit of your journey. But let's start with Kara. Tell us about yourself. Tell us what listeners tonight should know about Kara Brookins, author of Rise. Author of Rise, yes, that's the latest, which is a memoir. But I started out as a fiction writer, so I'm new to the memoir world and kind of finding my way around, around what it's like to tell the truth. Um, I'm also a mother of four, and I worked 17 years as a senior programmer analyst writing software systems. So, um, a mom and a geek all the way around. And a writer. And a writer. And Kara, your nonfiction books, at least, I mean, your fiction books, sorry, in the beginning, were they YA and middle grade? Am I remembering that correctly? Yes, they did YA and middle grade, and then they did one adult suspense. A Little Boy Blue, which is a medical thriller in the Appalachian Mountains. And my newest ones, as soon as I have time to get those out, I have a mystery coming out. 
Oh, excellent. We're going to get into that for sure, and we're going to certainly talk about the new mystery, and it's interesting because Pamela has what I believe is a trilogy just starting out, so we're going to talk about kind of just starting out and books on the cusp, but excellent. So remember, audience, I promised you some astonishing parallels. Um, Pamela Crane, please tell us a little bit about yourself, not about the art of fear yet. We're going to get into the books a little later, but what should our listeners know about Pamela Crane, author of The Art of Fear? I um, am a professional juggler, as in I juggle my four little kids, and I have a horse rescue farm, and I run an editing company. So, and that's that's all in addition to writing. So, I'm a very busy lady, but it's all good stuff. So, you know, other than when the kids are driving me crazy, that's when I retreat out to the barn and soothe my panic attacks with with horses. So. It's wonderful about the horse rescue. I mean, one of the similarities that really jumped out at me between both Kara Brookins and Pamela Crane is, of course, the four children. I mean, that's just interesting. You both have the same number of children. But really, that exactly what you said, Pamela, the juggle. Um, you're both balancing an awful lot. Kara, you are a professional software developer. You write. You also built a house. We're going to get into that. Um, Pamela, you have a horse rescue and an editing business, and uh, you write. Tell us, each of you, and let's jump back to Pamela, and then we'll go to Kara, but Pamela, tell us what you feel as a working, you know, woman today about that exact issue, the juggle. I mean, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there about trying to have it all and whether it's possible to have it all, and tell us your thoughts on that. Um, if I were to condense it in one word, I would say insanity, <laughs> but um, it's, it is very difficult sometimes just trying to, and I think most people's lives do feel this way when you have, like, your job and your extracurriculars and, you know, just it's a very fast-paced lifestyle these days. But it's, it's the same time as very fulfilling. So, I mean, and I feel like having gone through, like, accomplishing the things that I've accomplished, that I can do anything, which was kind of when I segued into writing. I felt like, you know, this isn't so bad. I, I think I could eat a little bit more on my plate. <laughs> so... Um, but it's, it's enjoyable. I feel like, you know, I've got purpose, you know, and enjoyment in the things that I do. So that's all the good stuff. But Does having more to do feed the writing in some ways, or would you say they work at cross-purposes and it's a matter of, you know, force, you know, trying to carve out time, but the other stuff, would you say fuels it or is it trust? Yeah, I think it definitely fuels it because I um, – it's my quiet time. It's my – almost a solitary time where I can just use my creative, you know, most of my dialogue with my children is very, you know, mommy, I want this, and baby talk and, you know, trying to just get my point across to them. And when I can write, I feel like I can, you know, use some of my creative energy and do something enjoyable for myself. So I, it definitely fuels it because I feel like it's my getaway into my world, into my stories and my characters. So definitely helps me stay sane. <laughs> That's interesting that it's your me time. So, Kara, before we get into the books, kind of same question, you know, the juggle and the struggle and, and your feelings about having more to do than any any person should reasonably, you know, attempt a lot. It definitely feels the same way. I mean, it feels that insanity sometimes. Just looking at my calendar and knowing there is not any humanly way possible to accomplish all of these things. But I tend to be a person who likes a challenge, and that sort of thing motivates me. You know, okay, I have three weeks' worth of 
things on my calendar this week. Let's just see what I can get done. And I like that sort of a challenge and leaping in and really pushing myself and feeling like I'm stretching. But it also forces me to constantly remind myself to loosen up my standards on something. For example, if I'm going to push really hard this week on trying to get, you know, something done with a book, then my housekeeping is not going to be the same as it was last week when I was focusing on house projects and gardening. You know, I've loosened up a lot on a lot of those things. Um, because you really can't do it all at once. You have to sort of do really well at one thing one week and really well at another thing the next week. At least that's what I found, that that juggle isn't always consistent between all of those items. And with my writing, I don't know if I would call it fueling my writing, but I think it focuses my writing in that I know when I sit down, I don't have the time to procrastinate. I'm going to have to leave right in. I have, you know, two hours to write. And then I'm going to start dozing off at the keyboard and typing all day. So I have exactly this much time. I have to dive right in and, and get at it. So this focuses it for me. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting take. And I know a lot of writers who make the transition from writing around a day job to writing full-time say that, that all of a sudden they had eight hours and they weren't sure how to fill it, whereas when you know you have that window, you really better sit down and kind of hit the keyboard. Running. Um, you also said something, Kara, that really leapt out at me with the theme of this show, which is kind of two amazing lives, which is, you, you know, you can do everything, but you can't do it all at once. And I feel like that's great advice for people that, you know, if, if you're not trying to make sure everything is done, you can do an awful lot. Right, right. And, you know, you can excel at some things you know, many different times. You can't excel at everything all the time. And there are so many times. And, you know, maybe I'm traveling and doing some extra speaking, and I'm also on a deadline with some writing. And I drive down my driveway, and my neighbors are outside, and I'm, like, so sorry about the lawn. I know exactly what it looks like this week because I did not get it mowed. Oh, in fact, I didn't even mow it last week. Um, you know, so I know you can't do everything perfect all the time. And it's like, that's okay. Right. This is a lot to hear for me. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that I'm not the only one who has to drop the ball on more than a handful of things. <laughs> so, Pamela, you relate to the lawn, the lawn not getting those for a few weeks at a time. Your horses can do that. That's right. I have to delegate. Horses do this, and the kids have to do some <laughs> other stuff, <laughs> which means it doesn't get done at all or done right, but that's okay. <laughs> I want to delve more into the specifics of all your you're both doing and, and, you know, interesting on many different fronts. But I also really want to talk about the books because most of our listeners are writers, for sure, but they're also readers. And frequently, word of the show kind of gets out after the initial flurry to readers. And readers listening now are set to discover two really just great books. I read them both before the show, which I don't always get to do. Um, but for this one, I really did it. And I just flipped away to a different world with both of them. So we're talking to Pamela Crane, who's the author of The Art of Fear. That's the first in the Little Things That Kill series. And we're talking to Kara Brookins, who wrote Rise, How a House Built a Family. Both of them have other books on the table, which we're certainly going to be talking about. But let's talk about these books first. And um, let's start with Rise. So Kara certainly has a story behind Rise, which is a memoir. Um, it's a book that I can honestly say has affected my own uh, thinking about how I want to live my life, and, and that's that's no small thing to say about a book. So, Kara, tell us about Rise. Oh, thank you. 
Rise is the true story of my family. I was a victim of some pretty extreme domestic violence and stalking. And I decided at some point that we needed a major change in our life. My kids at the time were 17, 15, 11, and 2. So I started to feel this sort of sense of urgency that I had to do something before those big kids left home. And we also needed a place to live. So I decided we would build a house by watching YouTube videos. And we built a 3,500-square-foot house. I was the plumber. I ran the gas lines. The kids and I mixed the concrete in the wheelbarrow. We raised the walls. And we built a house. I mean, your description is amazing, but I feel like you're almost underselling it. And I don't I don't <laughs> want to give away. I always say there are no spoilers on Inside Twelve, and there are not. But I'm just going to tell people who are about to read this book. I mean, puncture wounds and, you know, the insight when you <laughs> – you know, when you figured out the second floor was going to be different from the first floor, you know, which I hadn't thought of myself until you wrote it in the book. I was like, yeah, you do it once, now you do it again. But, of course, it's different. Tell us, go into a little more detail, Carol. I'm going to ask Pamela to do the same thing when she probably sums up her book too quickly for the story that it is. But go into a little bit more detail about how this actually happened, Carol, if you don't. Well, sure. Uh, if you can imagine, I was, you know, a 110-pound computer programmer and an author. I had no idea how to build a house, not a clue. So it was watching on YouTube, and this was back in 2008, so I don't use YouTube on our smartphone because there was no such thing as a smartphone. So we had to watch it YouTube, watch YouTube back at the house that we were living in, and, you know, literally Google, how do you frame a window? How do you lay a foundation block? and then come back out here and step-by-step step try to figure that out. And, of course, it was a bit of a comedy because we did it wrong multiple times before we ever did anything right. And, you know, with the kids on the job site, my youngest was only two years old. So we had a toddler running around on the job site in little rubber boots trying to keep his clothes on him. You know how kids are when you're potty training them. They never want to keep their clothes on. So we had a naked little kid running around on the job site half the time. And, you know, it was just this comedy of errors, but also this really intense getting to know each other. My kids have been in this survival mode for more than a decade of living in fear, and we had lost the ability to communicate with each other, and we didn't laugh together. So to be literally out here in the trenches of this foundation, in the freezing cold, in the mud, trying to develop a relationship with your kids for the first time, it was profound and terrifying, and I was afraid we would fail on every level. I was afraid that I would fail to develop that relationship and that the kids would just walk away and decide not to help. I was afraid that we would not end up building the house. I had a nine-month construction loan, which means I had to do the whole project in nine months while working full-time and the kids at school. So it was nonstop, 20-hour days for nine months doing everything the hard way, uh, very much like a third world bill trying to figure things out. You know, we didn't have water on site in time. We didn't have electricity on site. So we were hauling water from our neighbor's pond to mix the concrete. And, you know, it was just one crazy thing after another. It was not what you would imagine a normal construction site would look like. It was very much like what you would imagine a construction site with a woman and four kids would look like. Um, Well, thank you. Thank you for going into some more detail. And readers, I promise you that if you read Rise by Kara Brookins, you will get 
even more of the taste and told in a very, like, you're really there on the scene. I mean, I felt the air beneath me when, you know, you were eight feet up and then 20 feet up and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a wonderful description of the story behind the book and the story in the book is, is just so richly layered. And as I said, we're going to do a compare and contrast of Rise and the Artist Year, but first I'd really like to hear, Pamela, you have some of the most amazing, like, advanced reviews, blurby, you know, genuine, talk about in the trenches, like, reader reviews for the Artist Year that I've ever heard. And I'm actually just going to quote a few to our writers, uh, to our listening audience, so you can understand what was so, like, these are the reviews that you really would be envious of. A must-read thriller and instant bestseller, Southern Editor Reviews says. And then Pamela Crane introduces a mind twist that takes everything you love about thrillers and pushes it outside the box. Electrifies you with clever prose. And a plot that will terrify you. And then, let's see what were some of them. Oh, I know. Another one of my favorites with thriller fan reviews. The Art of Fear is a psychological fiction at its best. Um, and then a reader review, and my favorite, I always the reader reviews, are kudos to mastering the mystery genre on a diehard thriller, Sam, but Crane Duke. Okay, we're not going, no spoilers on Inside Thrill. So, Pamela, please be very careful. But tell us the inspiration for the artist here, which is Ari's story. And um, maybe also a little bit about how it's the first in a trilogy, because one of the things I found interesting was that not everything is tied up by the end. Yes, and that, <laughs> some readers hate that. <laughs> um, but I don't think that uh, the story can truly end, you know, when the character is going to keep going on. So, um, but I, I won't go too much into the ending here, but basically the story follows a girl named Ari Wilburn, and she had a family but became a foster child when her sister passed, when her sister died in a car a car crash, um, actually killed her in their yard. And the parents resented Ari for, and ended up, because of the tension in their relationship and the family, um, it was a danger for her to live with her family, and, and this is kind of based on a, a friend of mine's experience with her own parents. Um, something tragic happened in her family, and her parents, it was just, she was a danger with her family. So there's a lot of um, truth to my characters, and almost all my characters are based on real people, so um kind of makes it a little interesting there. And when my friends read it, and they say, oh, that's me, isn't it? <laughs> I say, maybe. <laughs> so, um, but... Yeah, so she ended up um, growing up, had a lot of issues, but was determined to make friends, started a suicide support group because of her suicidal tendencies. She was just, a lot of foster kids do have a lot of those feelings, and so she relates a lot to that. And in the process of this support group, she met a girl named Tina whose father committed suicide, and that's what brought her there. And it turns out that Tina was a sex traffic victim and um, I, a, a good friend of mine who had a similar experience in a sex trafficking ring gave me the inside scoop on what she endured. And Tina's life is very much on this. So a lot of it's unfortunately more truth than fiction. But it, um, it's inspiring because Tina was able to get out of it, just like my friend was. And they wanted to get to the bottom of the murders, both murders. Ari's sister's murder, who killed her and why, and Tina's father's murder, because she didn't believe it was a suicide. They thought it was a murder. So kind of, you know, unravel the mystery of how these people died and why, and there's a strange connection 
that readers will find out if they pick up the book <laughs> and read it. Right. We're not going to talk about that, but very well done, Pamela, uh, the twist, the connection. But there were, I promised listeners and both of you some really startling similarities, and I know I was certainly struck by them. I'm going to lay out the three that really came to mind, and then actually you guys can talk about whichever of them speak to you. But So these are the similarities I felt between Rise, How a House Built a Family by Carol Brookins, which is a memoir, and The Art of Fear by Pamela Crane, which is the first in a new series. Um, and it's interesting, Pamela, what you just said about facing it in some ways on real people and doing research and that kind of thing, um, because it, made, it brings your book a little bit more in line, I guess, with Kara's memoir. But so three similarities that I really noticed in the book was, first of all, that fear was a link between both of them. You know, there were things that Ari said, like, for instance, in that first meeting of the suicide support group, that Kara were exactly what you said about, you know, coming to feel as you escaped your situation that you couldn't be held back anymore. You were you were not going to be, you know, this not talking out, this not honest, this, you know, holding it inside kind of person. Um, so that was one similarity. I mean, it's right there in Pamela's title, so fear. And the other mm-hmm. was really they're both books about survivors. I mean, you know, a real-life survivor, in your case, Kara, and Pamela, in, in the case of the artist here, your character, um, but based on a woman who survived something. And finally, and this might be the most surprising one, is I felt there was a real similarity in the parents and the stories about the parents in both books. So, fear, surviving, and parents, any of those either of you would like to speak to? I will go with some fear talk. Yeah. Um, yeah, and especially because a moment ago when I described the book, I just sort of left it a a big portion of that out in that every other chapter of the book is a fall chapter. There are rise and fall chapters. And the fall chapters are about the things that happened before that brought us to a point where building a house felt like a sane idea. And that was extreme domestic violence. That was uh, being married to a man who developed severe paranoid schizophrenia. And then for years being crossed by that man and tormented and he, you know, tortured our pets. So this idea of living around somebody who is insane, um, and there is no predictability to insanity like there is to a normal person who is just behaving badly. You know, you can link that, you can predict it, you can sort of see some sort of a pattern. But with true insanity, it can happen anytime, anywhere, and you have no idea what will happen. Uh, so, you know, we did live in such extreme fear and uncertainty for so many years that that defined us. It defined everything we did and that we didn't even know how to think of a better way to live or how to imagine what a better life would look like until we built that house. And that we had been so paralyzed and, you know, and small thinking that once we were able to take this physical action to actually go out there and hit things with a hammer and cut big boards, that we could actually see action that we could take to literally build a better life, that that was the only way we could conquer that fear. And there were still scary things out there that could happen. Um, you know, those men were still out there at that time. But we were slowly building our own little secure place and building our own strength and our own family bonds at the same time in order to conquer that. But it's 
you know, it leaves its mark. Uh, fear is a, is a long-term thing. It definitely leaves its mark, and it's a tough thing to overcome. But, uh, there's a really beautiful part of the book, Carol, where you talk about how in days of not so old, people cope with their fear and their challenges and their life struggles in the way that was, you know, action like a spirit quest for a teenager. Right. Or, and can you say a little, I thought it was an interesting thing because, of course, you're a writer and you deal with words, you know, you deal in words every day, and yet it was very vivid that, of course, you do something different with your fear when you take a hammer to it. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that's so true that, you know, we've come to the sedentary sort of way of dealing with things where it needs to be take action. You know, um, again, like you said, the spirit quest or, you know, kids would be taken out into the forest and left in sort of their coming of age and they had to survive. They had to find their way back. They had to conquer some sort of a physical thing. And I think that we do it some in sports today. You know, kids have to go out and physically do something. That's not conquering a fear or a problem in as direct of a way. You know, we tend to sit down and talk about our feelings more now than ever before in human history. Or we sit down and we eat our feelings. Or we sit down and we watch, you know, Netflix and then get on a series. Instead of saying, okay, here's a problem. What can I physically go out and do to make it better? And in my case, it was so important that we did it as a group, which is also sort of an ancient thing. Whether you, I think more often it was like a group of peers, you know, a group of girls who were all coming of age at the same time would go through some sort of a trial. You know, in this case, my kids and I had gotten through really extreme trauma together. And so many of the things that I saw about healing were about a woman going on a journey alone, you know, hiking a trail or, or going to sit on a beach or going on some sort of a journey alone. But I knew that for me, I had to heal with my kids that they were part of the trauma and they had to be part of the healing. So I think there's so much value in that. There was for us, and I'd love to see more people looking at healing that way as a group activity. Um, you know, whether it's a couple of single moms who team up or a couple of single dads who team up and, you know, they build a playground in the backyard for their kids or some kind of physical action that they do that the kids can join them with. You know, I think it's a, a tremendous thing, and it's not a new invention. It's actually returning to the way that things, you think, used to be for humans and should be. You know, we were meant to, to do physical things. Yeah, and things in community. I mean, it's a great way, actually, to look at Rise by Kara Brookins. It's kind of wild by Cheryl Strait, but for our family. And I think it's a great, it's a great angle that coming together as a family is not necessarily what's going to happen, especially after traumatic situations, but also just in daily life today and how can you consciously uh, turn your attention to doing something that will accomplish that. And well, and you did an amazing job there. It, it has to be intentional. Those sorts of things don't happen by accident. Right. Um, you know, the decision to build a house was intentional and the decision to try to do something with my kids that would bring them closer was intentional. Right. Yeah. And every day of carrying it out, you have to keep bringing right. attention back to it. So, Pamela, I mean, Kara sort of chose fear. I, I would like to hear you talk about it, especially because you talk about how Tina, who's the other character along with Ari, um, was based in some ways on somebody who certainly survived something. And, um, you know, as I said, fear is kind of baked right into the title. The first in the trilogy is called The Art of Fear. Um, what is your thinking about that? 
Well, I definitely, um, one of the things that I liked about my characters and the real people they're based on is that they did not let fear, um, they did shape them, but they didn't let it control them. And in Tina's case, you know, she lived in fear since she was five years old, being under the thumb of, you know, basically her parents sold her and to sex traffickers, and they, you know, controlled her life and everything, and she was bred to live by fear and obey by fear and everything. And, and while a lot of people don't understand the realities of that stuff in the world today, it, it's a, it really happens, and and it might not be as extreme as that for many children, but a lot of people do live in fear to either spouses or, um, you know, or all kinds of stuff, even just their own insecurities that give them fear. And in Ari's case, you know, she had a lot of fears of who she was. She thought she was responsible for her sister's death her entire life, and she had this fear that she was a monster and didn't, you know, it, it just paralyzed her from really embracing any kind of decent future. And it wasn't until they both overcame fear that they became courageous and empowered and were able to, you know, stop a killer and <laughs> um, and basically uncover a lot of mysteries that were holding them both back from, you know, finding a happiness in life. So I think a big part of fear is that it can cripple some people, but it can also push you to do more mm-hmm. and Very push well. you out of your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that definitely came that. through in the book. And one of the things I thought was, you know, kind of particularly insightful was toward the beginning of the book, I talked about how she connected with Tina, and she makes that, again, no real spoilers, but she makes that connection to her sister that maybe she's having a, you know, in psychological terms, you'd call it like a transference. Like, this is her chance to sort of redeem herself. And yeah, that's something you were consciously aware of when you were writing? But that really yes. Yeah, because I I kind of, um, after talking to the person who it was based on and the guilt that, that she felt, she did always express how she wanted to somehow rectify the relationship and there was always an intentional effort behind a lot of her choices. Now, in Ari's case, her she felt like she was garbage because she could have saved her sister and didn't. And you know, but at the, but then when it when she came to the point of where she could do something in her sister's honor and and basically fix the past in a way, it was very intentional throughout from the very beginning when I first crafted her character that I knew that this was going to be a big part of who she was, that this was going to, this was going to fuel a lot of her behaviors and choices, um, the memory of her sister, and trying mm-hmm. to bring her back in a way and smooth things over, I guess you could say, even though her sister wasn't alive anymore, it still gave her closure. So, and she can heal herself, kind of healing was also yes. in one area, I think. And it's also, can you say just a little bit about, um, the, I don't even know whether to call it research since you're actually talking to somebody, but the woman whose experiences you based Tina's background on, can you say a little bit about what the process of getting to know that world was like? You know, as you Yeah. Know? I actually met her through church, and um, she basically, her family, her parents sold her when she was five years old um, to, I don't even know how they found these people other than online, um, though that was quite a few years ago, so I don't know if it would have been online or just 
word of mouth. Um, so she was sold by her own parents because they were having trouble making ends meet. And um, they had some minor communication with the guy. He would send money every once in a while. And, you know, eventually she – the plan was initially that they were going to get her back, but I think that the greed to just keep getting the checks was higher priority than getting their daughter back. And she ended up breaking out herself when, because basically these children are, you know, they're starved and eaten and everything, so the fear really drives their decision to be silent. But a neighbor witnessed her bruises one time and started asking questions because she lived in a suburban area, so nobody really thought much of it until she was very silent, didn't have friends. And those were the telltale signs of a child that's in sex, that's in the sex trafficking ring. And, you know, she wouldn't speak to anybody and very introverted. And um, they, the neighbor, nice nosy neighbor, ended up being the reason why she got out. So um, that was her story. Now, mine's a little bit different with Tina, but it's it's still very similar vein of, of, uh, the, of the events that happened with my friend. So... So inside thrill can't always do such important things, but they're two really just pivotal for our times and maybe for always issues on the table tonight. And one is sex trafficking of children in Pamela Crane's The Art of Fear and the signs you just mentioned. I'm just going to repeat them because I think it's so important for listeners to hear. Uh, a silent child, a child obviously showing signs of physical abuse such as bruises and a child who's largely friendless and isolated. Did I get that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then Kara, I mean, clearly domestic violence and survival thereof is a huge part of RISE. Um, you mentioned paramedic schizophrenia. Could you talk a little bit about, you know, I, I guess just in that vein, and I'm sure there are some survivors listening because the statistics are always that this is happening far more often than we realize. Um, do you want to say a little bit about that? That might be helpful for listeners. Sure. I think it's so tough for people who have never been in this situation. You know, the, the response you always get is, why don't you just leave? Uh, you know, people still say that to me. Why didn't you just leave? And, you know, there are a couple of reasons that, that people say, a long list of really complex ones, in fact, but a couple of really important things for people to keep in mind. More than 70% of the women who are killed in a domestic violence situation are killed after they leave. And women are very aware of how much danger they're in. They're constantly told, if you leave, I will kill you. You know, if you leave, I will kill the kids. So, you know, that's one of the very, very big reasons that women stay in a situation like this. They're also held hostage by their finances. They're held hostage by their medical insurance and by the court system. In almost every case, the abuser will have unsupervised visitation with the children after the divorce. And that is, it may be immediately, it may be a year later. But either way, the mom knows that as long as she stays, or the dad, because abuse certainly goes in both directions, the abuse parent knows that as long as they stay, they can protect their kids. Once they leave, those kids have to go alone back into that household. And so, you know, that's just a, and of course there are religious reasons, there are social reasons, there are so many reasons a woman stays. And each woman has to find their own way past all of those reasons and they mount up big and strong into a way that they can financially get out of that situation. 
and that they can physically safely get out of that situation. And obviously, it's almost impossible to do alone. So any woman who is in that situation, reach out, find a safe way to find help with a shelter, with a church, with other people who can help you out of this situation safely. You're worth it, obviously, and so are your kids. And if you're in a position to help women, they don't need help just to get out of that situation. They need help to rebuild their life. You know, they have to, many times they won't have a car that's in their name. The house is probably not in their name. Often they're not even allowed to work a job. So there are so many ways that you can help women, you know, get everything that they need to set up and start over. Uh, through shelters primarily. That's the safest way to help is to help through a shelter. That's great advice. Do you have any, you know, women or men, because that's a good point that you made, that domestic violence can go in both directions, who are listening now and saying, yeah, but I don't have anybody. I'm not a member of the church, or that's all been taken from me. I'm completely isolated as often survivors. Potential survivors to be are. Do you have any concrete suggestions for how to become less isolated or reach out to that one person? Well, and domestic violence victims are typically intentionally separated and isolated from family, from friends, from everyone. And also have to be aware that your phone and computer will be monitored by the abusive spouse or partner. So it's really important that you reach out to the, you know, National Domestic Violence Hotline, that there are so many ways that you can get help, that you have to find a safe way to do it outside of the watchful eye of this person. Um, it's too easy now to track a car, where a car goes. So very, you know, it has to be very calculated and very intentional the way that you get out of this. But definitely, if you don't have anyone else to contact, there's a shelter in every area that knows how to get you out. Find a safe way to call or contact the shelter, and they will get you out from there. They've done it, they've done it many times, and there are so many companies that will help. Um, I talked with. We had movers started this great company. Uh, it's just a basic moving company. But they started this movement to move domestic violence systems for free. Mm-hmm. And they have inspired so many other companies to help domestic violence victims. I'll, I'll give you a free alarm system for the first three months or whatever it is. I'll mow your lawn. I'll help you paint your house. That so they give free services to people who are trying to rebuild their lives. Because you're literally starting with nothing. And so often they have to just flee in the night with the clothes on their back. Great. Right. Well, great advice from both Kara Brookins and Pamela Crane on two very, very key important issues that figure in their books, Domestic Violence in the Case of Rise by Kara Brookins and Sex Trafficking, Especially of Children in the Art of Fear by Pamela Crane. Um, so as I say, Inside the World Radio does not always go to such um, heights or depth either, but I'm very glad we're able to tonight. I'd like to, you know, move kind of onward because one of the amazing things, of course, is how much both of you are doing these days, and we talked about the juggle in the beginning of the show, but let's talk now about books specifically, books on the horizon. Pamela, The Art of Fear is the first in this series, and I, I actually thought you left it at the end really just perfectly, like you would not want any more cheese crossed. Um, but tell us a little bit about what's next for you and what you're working on now and things like that. I'm I'm continuing the series. Um, the next book in the series is The Death of Life. But um, I took a little tangent to write a very, we'll say, a Leanne Moriarty 
type of book. It's a um, called Pretty Ugly Lives, and it's basically about four housewives, and one of them, we don't know who, but one of them's family is killed. And we think it's at the hands of the mother. And um, you have to read the book to find out exactly why, but I don't know if you, you know, a lot of the news is, talks about, like, moms just snapping and driving their families into off of cliffs and into rivers and, you know, just going nuts. And I, the book kind of uncovers a lot of those feelings and those emotions. And part of it stems, and I hate to admit this, but some of it stems from my own experiences with four kids. And, you know, my oldest is only seven. So I, you know, if you deduct that, you know, that's a lot of young little kids all at once constantly clamoring for me. And Sometimes I feel I'm on the verge of snapping, but don't worry, my kids are safe. Because <laughs> you write about it. We write to overcome right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, um, but it's a, it's kind of my self-therapy so that I remind myself I love my family, I love my children, their little annoyances are wonderfully, wonderfully fun, and I'm just going to work through it. So, um, but yeah, so that's my, that's the next relief I have, and then I'm going to, the, the, the Little Things That Kill series will continue after that. But that that book is kind of my right now I need to write it <laughs> type of book. That's interesting. So you mentioned Leanne Moriarty. And, you know, one of the things as I was reading The Artist here was that I was hearing this is what people are talking about when they talk about really a new genre that is sort of known as suspense horror. Because there are definitely horror elements, in for me anyway, as a reader mm-hmm. of genres in this book. And then when you talk about, Pretty Ugly Lies, is that the title of the new one? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, that's a real, so that's sort of a departure into almost satirical women's fiction, is that right? Or Yeah, yeah, it's a little, I, I guess psychological because it's very mm-hmm. much delves into their heads and what a mm-hmm. lot of moms think but don't say and mm-hmm. the smiles we put on our faces but the pain we might be holding inside and and how that can come out in very insane ways or in just very twisted ways. So it's a, a very psychological type of uh, women's fiction thriller. <laughs> so it kind of cross genres here. Yeah. But I think that's what's neat about your work is you really do blend genres. That's very interesting. I love the title, Pretty Ugly Life. Uh, I'm a Leanne Moriarty fan, so I'm glad to know that there will be something in that vein out from you, from Pamela Crane, who is – Book The Art of Fear is what we're discussing on Inside Thrill uh, tonight, but in addition to that series continuing, Pamela is also going to be releasing a book that is called Pretty Ugly Lives with hints of Leanne Moriarty. Um, so, Kara, you wrote Rise, and that was a departure for you because it's a memoir. Prior to that, you'd written a suspense novel and some YA suspense, and now you said you have a new mystery out coming out. So tell us a little bit about what's on the horizon for you writing one. Well, coming out was probably a little bit optimistic um, <laughs> in that I'm still writing it. <laughs> um, You're an optimist. You said so frequently. Yes, yes. And this year has been so insane. You know, with writing a memoir is a different kind of publicity and media than writing fiction. So I have been traveling all over a couple of places a month and, you know, promoting and doing talk shows and news and speaking all over. In fact, I'll be somewhere tomorrow night speaking. So, you know, that has been insanely busy, and I feel lost not writing. And as writers, you know that. If you're not writing, you feel like you're not breathing. Mm-hmm. So that has been a really frustrating thing for me. 
But I did start a new book. I started, and this one is a suspense. And it's about digital fraud and especially digital kidnapping, which I'm mm. absolutely obsessed with. I mm. think that is the, one of the most terrifying things you can imagine as a parent because your child hasn't been stolen. And what digital kidnapping is, is a person steals a lot of digital images of a child and presents them as their own. They name yes. them, they describe every photo and what is happening. And over a long period of time, they are living as though this child are presenting, at least online, as though this child is theirs. So it's absolutely yeah. horrifying in that you have to wonder how far will they go. That is a nightmare I have as a parent, too. I've, and I've heard of, um, like, how you should never have your child look at a camera or something, like certain ways when you take pictures of your kids to not – if you're going to plan on posting them on Facebook, not having them look at the camera because of child predators and, I don't know, just different weird things. But this may be that, that is scary, which are describing is even worse than yeah. scary. Well, and, I mean, it's impossible, right? The number of people who are snapping photos and dropping them online now, it's just impossible to police. So I just wanted to, as a camera, kind of explore. That's a terrifying thing. It's one of my worst fears. So I combined that with someone who was committing digital fraud and sort of went into this digital kidnapping thing. And that's what I'm working on now. I, I'm trying to make it uh, as friendly and, you know, as writers, of course, and I know a lot of the listeners are writers too, that when you're transitioning from all these books, and I have written across every genre, that idea as a writer, but I'm now settling into this thriller mystery genre and really loving it. So... That's the direction I want to go, but I'm coming from a memoir, so you want to maintain some of that leadership. So I'm trying to, you know, make certain that I have sympathetic characters and still deal with, you know, children and women in jeopardy, which kind of maintains that same sort of leadership that, you know, would have enjoyed life. And I also have a mystery that I finished. It's the first in the series, and it will probably not come out until after this one for the same reason, um, to not alienate leaders, to sort of lead them down the path. And it is about a, it's a women's comedy about divorce attorney and the dolls. So it's and what? Wait, what well, was the second thing? Divorce attorney and the dolls. Oh. <laughs> so it's kind of a wicked women's fun. Um, and it's a little bit on the sort of dark side of humor. So my agent is determined I have to have a different book to come out before that one. So that's why I'm saying it's a little fraud one. I'm not sure it's as light as she was hoping for, though. So we'll see. <laughs> did, you have, did you actually, did you practice with the voodoo dolls to, to really get the technique down and all the, you know, extra insight on that? I don't know if I should admit that, but my kids and I actually made some because... In the book, she's making baby dolls with attorneys that looks like they seem to be a spouse, right? So you have to make, like, a police officer baby doll or a doctor baby doll. And, yeah, so my kids may make them. Don't worry. It's our little <laughs> secret. We won't, we won't share this. I'm talking all for the lives tonight. And it was, <laughs> I mean, it was all done in good fun, in humor, and not, we didn't do any kind of strange rituals or anything like that. Um, <laughs> I'm sure it's out there. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, there's always more fiction books. I have a zillion ideas, and I wish that I could just sit down and do that with all of my time, but. And no, I don't. So, you know, the kids so are there. Yeah. 
there's too many other things I love too. So I don't think that I really wish I could do that with all of my time, but I do wish I had more time for it. Well, I mean, perfect segue into the topic I think we should wrap up with tonight. You both sort of hinted at it, but let's talk about the business side of this industry and the writing a little bit. Carrie, you talked about being very busy and how the promotion of a book with a memoir is different. But Pamela, one of the things that I noticed particularly, I'm very interested in writers' journeys, and I noticed that you're with Tabella House, and, uh, you know, I'm interested in different small presses, independent presses, all that kind of stuff. Can you each sort of talk, and I don't know if what I just touched on now is even what comes to your mind, but can you touch a little bit on the business side of being a writer today and, you know, it's another juggle, the marketing plus the writing, but tell us a little bit about how you're sort of, you know, the state of the industry today, because I know listeners are usually very interested in, in how writers are, you know, handling the, the publishing fees at the moment. Yeah, one of my one of the things that's been neat about my experiences, so back back a long, long time ago, I'm not saying how long, so I don't give away how old I am, but I was an editor for a pretty large traditional publishing house. So I kinda got in, you know, inside scoop on what the large houses do and how things work. And then years later when I wrote my first book I got picked up by a medium sized publisher, but um, you know, it wasn't quite as personable as I wanted it to be, and so I ended up doing some indie publishing, and I really liked indie publishing because I could control everything, and I'm not going to let my husband in, give input on this, but he, he accuses me of being a control freak. I just think I am, you know, he's very, <laughs> right, exactly, it's called perfectionism, you know, there's nothing wrong with being a perfectionist, but, um, so I think as authors, they're, the one thing I love about today's market is that there's so many different types of, of publishing. You can, I mean, obviously, you know, I think many authors dream of being with a big house, but as a, when working in one, you know, sometimes it's not always the best fit because you're a number, you can get dropped so easily if your editor changes, your book's gone, and, you know, I know, Jenny, that you've actually experienced a lot of this stuff that I'm talking about, too. And, you know, and then there's a lot of smaller presses now that are much more personalized and really um, can, like, give a lot of input. So authors have a lot more input. And and then with indie publishing, you know, as long as the author is willing to put a lot of time and work into marketing, it's also very lucrative and can be a very enjoyable experience, just as long as you have (laughs) a lot of uh, energy. (laughs) And willing to really do a lot of market research and advertising. I mean, there's just so much to learn. But I've gotten a little taste of all of them. And, you know, I think it's, it's just a nice time to publish. It's a really nice time for authors to be out there because you can really – career is whatever you want it to be and how much work you're willing to put into it and how much learning you're willing to embark on. And so, um, yeah, I just – I think it's a great climate right now for the publishing industry. So, I love it. <laughs> because there are so many options you're saying and you can sort of yeah. find your best fit. Yeah. Yep. And so authors don't have to despair if they don't get picked up by a big ten or big five. You know, there's a lot of other houses now and if you don't get an agent, there's still other options still then and I, it's it's just nice to be an author because you can still achieve those things and but if it doesn't work out there's you know, you can still pursue your dream of writing and still make money off of it. And, you know, I think that's 
what makes it a really good time to publish. Because back when I first started in publishing, it was not that way. It was only traditional, only large. And now there's a lot more options for people. So, yeah, yeah. That's a great perspective. So, Kara, your perspective on the industry and especially what you said, you know, you publish both fiction and now nonfiction, and those are two different worlds, too. Right, and through all different sides of publishers as well. So I've had, you know, gotten to play on this path in multiple different directions, too. And I love that they're all legitimate pathways now. You know, for so long it was like, yes, there are other ways to do it, but still traditional publishing with the big publishers is the the best way to go, um, or everybody's goal, and it's not that way anymore. All of these are legitimate ways, and people just really have to decide what their goal is. I would rather give up a lot of the control panel that you want to hang on to. I'm like, oh, I can give you some of my money, and you will do a lot of this for me? Oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to help after all. I think you did, I think you did plenty with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, and I am still this massive DIY person, and, you know, when it comes to my website or my social media, like, hands off, that is mine. I'm handling that. Um, but if it's tough, you know, I have a speakers bureau because they do a lot of speaking. And I do not mind them taking a percentage of what I do one tiny little bit because I don't have to book a plane ticket. I don't have to make sure there are books, you know, when I arrive. Somebody's going to just pick me up at the airport. And, you know, I don't have to worry about any of that stuff. Um, nor do I even have to find people to speak to. You know, they, they do all that for me. So, you know, that's a, that's a tremendous benefit, and it's the same way with publishers, that there are so many of them that will do a great bit of this for you, but, of course, that does mean that they take a percentage of your money. Um, but I think that, you know, that, that I think we've finally gotten there. I think that's fantastic that we have all these legitimate routes, but I think what most writers still don't understand going in is the amount of work that you have to do on the publicity. And that because all of these routes are now legitimate, there are so many more authors out there. And it's so much more difficult to, you know, to stand apart from everybody. Mm -hmm. But if you have to maintain a huge social media presence, that you have to be present in these other ways, you know, and do different gimmick things or, um, you know, like you did Jenny driving around the country and, you know, making your own book tour. There are so many more things that we have to put into it that take away from the writing time. And you have to learn to love that business side and really identify with, I am not just a writer who sits alone and writes books. I am a business person who is running my own business. I'm an entrepreneur who's, who's building this business. I think that that's really the only path to success as a full-time successful writer now. And that's a big change because I don't think that authors always have to do that. Uh, certainly not to the level that they do now. And I know when, when Rise sold, it sold in an auction. So I had a lot of different publishers, you know, large publishers calling me. And they all asked, you know, a variety of questions. I talked to the presidents. I talked to the editors and the marketing team. There was only one consistent question that every publisher talked about and that they spent the majority of our conversation talking about. And that was, tell me about your social media presence. And that is where we spent the majority of the discussion. Wow. And that's telling of what even the big publishers who are spending a lot of money on a book expect the author to still do a tremendous amount of the publicity and marketing. So it's, it's a new business. Embrace it. And writing is not so solitary anymore. Well, unless you count, you know, Facebook friends as still 
being friends. <laughs> In my opinion, yeah. they're still kind of friendless because they're virtual friends, but they're not people I actually hang out with. Great. <laughs> so. Yeah, but you're both absolutely right. It's not a solitary endeavor, except maybe when you're alone in your head with the words. And also what you're both saying, I think, brings us full circle, which is back to the juggle. And it's always a juggle. And I am so appreciative that Kara Brookins, author of Rise, and Pamela Crane, author of The Art of Fear, took time out from that juggle to be on Inside Thrill Radio. Um, I always learn something on this show, but I've, I've really learned in a special amount today. And are there any last words you'd like to tell our listeners, Pamela first, and then maybe Kara? Oh, just I really enjoyed this and... You know, I was a little nervous because I don't talk to anybody other than my four kids for most of the day. So uh, hopefully I didn't stumble across my words too much. But I really appreciate this, Jenny, that you're willing to interview me and um, have me on the show. It's been a very big pleasure for me. You know, I got to talk like an adult. It's just very refreshing. So I, I had a blast. I really enjoyed myself. So There were no juice boxes on the whole show. I'm so glad about that, and nobody spilled anything on me while I was on the phone, and there were no screaming kids in the background. This was a win, win, win. Tara, author of Rise, any last words for our listeners tonight? Oh, same pleasure here. What a great escape for me, and especially because we got to talk about the writing side of it. You know, I've been talking about the story so much, and you know, about the book side of it, the story side of it, but not about the writing and writing life. So I really enjoyed it. And now I want so bad you guys have teased me here to leap back into the fiction world. So thanks for the inspiration there. I needed that. Yay, going yeah. up here on the fiction side. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> Come on over to the best side. No, I am certainly excited for both of your future books. Say the titles, the, the forthcoming books. I know they are not finished, complete, all that, but one more time, Kara, your suspense novel on uh, digital kidnapping, is there a title for it yet, or you can't share that? I don't have a certain title. I keep changing it. The Divorce, okay. book, the divorce Attorney Reading Book is called Voodoo I Do. Oh, that's good. Voodoo I Do. But the digital kidnapping book will be out first, as you said. And a camera train, the next in the Little Things That Kill series, and then also tell us again the title of the sort of Leanne Moriarty suspense one in fiction. Tell us both. Yep. The next the after the art of fear yeah. is The Death of Life. Right. And my my women's fiction psychological one is Pretty Ugly Lies. So that's the next one you'll be seeing out for me. Wonderful. From Pamela Crane and Kara Brookins, thank you again for spending me in the evening on Inside Thrill. And I know listeners will be looking forward to discovering both Rise and The Art of Fear and then seeing more books from you in the future. Thank you, everybody. Good night. Good night.